We are in week three of Advent. Again, Christmas week, just a a great time. Uh, And we're going to be in Matthew chapter two today. Before we jump into that passage, I want to talk a little bit about Matthew, the author, and what he's trying to accomplish with this gospel. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and his, his uh, gospel was one of the most read books, read gospels of that time because of uh, his audience, uh, his focus to his audience. Matthew's uh, purpose in the book is to present the Messiah and the King in Jesus. And we see that from chapter 1 on, as Matthew will uh, uh, continue to repeat kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God throughout. And then from the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, focusing on the king of that kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 1, he gives a long list of names. Anyone deal with this on Christmas Eve or something? When you're reading the Christmas story, you start with all the names and you struggle through. And if you're like me, you skip like half the names. You're like, and that guy, and then that guy, and the other guy I can't pronounce. And you just kind of get through them so you can read the, the good stuff. Well, Matthew is intentional with, and all scripture is intentional with what it records. And Matthew, with this genealogy, is calling his author or his audience Uh, to recognize what he's doing. He starts out by saying, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right away, his audience's ears are on fire. They hear Abraham, who there was a covenant made to. They hear David, who was going to have a a scepter rise from him that was going to reign eternally. And then they hear the word Messiah connected to Jesus. All these things just has his audience engaged, and then he builds the genealogy of Jesus. He uses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, very big names in the Jewish faith, and and just captures who it is. And I highlight Jacob because it's something we'll see here in a little bit. He goes down through a whole bunch of begat, 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 to David, who he qualifies with king. Begat, 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 Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, that we call the Messiah. So right from the get-go, Matthew is saying, the guy we're about ready to talk to, in the context of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, is the king, the one that you have been expecting, the one we have been anticipating. He has come. And chapter 2 tells us about his coming. And it's through the perspective of some pagan Uh, magi from the east arriving in Jerusalem and making an announcement. This is what Matthew chapter 2 says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. The magi entered Jerusalem And Matthew immediately identifies that uh, Jesus has been born. And we're going to see this play out here in a little bit. Jesus has been born, and he's been born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bank that for a little bit. The days of Herod the king. As I've been having to study this first semester of seminary, uh, one of the things I have learned that kind of blew me away was something so basic. And it's an intentionality with observation. And what I mean by observation is when you're reading Scripture, read it multiple times 
and just make the statements, I can observe that, and then fill in the blank. And I used to dismiss this as just busy work. Oh, I just need to get through observations to get to the good stuff, the interpretation. But what my professor kept drilling into us was the more time you spend in observation, the less time you have to spend in interpretation. Because if you're paying attention, the author is telling you a lot of what you're supposed to see. And so as I'm doing this with Matthew chapter 2 in preparation for this morning, I mean, things just were popping out that in the past, when I've even taught on this, did not stand out to me. So I highlight some. The first thing is the repetition of words. Man, in uh, this account in Matthew 2, we see king repeated and then contrasted because we've got two kings that were the one that sits on the throne currently in Herod and the one the Magi have come uh, to find that was born king. And so that is both a, a comparison and a contrast. They both have the title king. One was put on a throne and one was born as king. And we're going to see that conflict play out. But the Magi walk into Jerusalem. Now, they have traveled just a little distance, okay? Uh, the estimates are around 400 miles. Now, I'll let that sink in. You can put wherever you go in destination uh, around here, 400 miles from here, walking, traveling, seeking because of a star that they observed. So who are they and why would they do that? Well, the Magi are probably Persian astrologers who studied the stars looking for divine activity. They gazed into the heavens looking for God to give them a sign, to show them some kind of activity that they could study and try to understand. Many feel that the reason that they took the journey is because as they saw this star come up and were trying to figure out what was going on, they went to all the sacred texts that they had access to. And maybe even through Daniel in his time in Babylon, uh, there were some, some papers that shared Balaam's prophecy. And as they tried to figure out what this star meant, maybe they came across that and it indicated something that was to happen that caused them to take this long journey. Let me read to you what Numbers 24, verse 17 says. And I'll, I'll say it again. I said it the last time. Uh, the older I get, the smaller they make this print. Um, so I'll put some glasses on. Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. These magi, as they tried to respond to what they were seeing and doing all this research, may have come across this prophecy and located the purpose in Israel. So they loaded up their mode of transportation, uh, probably not an armada, and made the 400-mile journey and ended up in Jerusalem. And as they crossed into the city, they made the declaration, We are here! And we searched the one born king of the Jews. And you would think, arriving in Jerusalem, saying that the king of the Jews has been born, they would be received really well. That this would be exciting news. That there would be so much anticipation and celebration that these guys who 
seem like they know what they're talking about, have just proclaimed that our king has arrived. That would be great. That's not what happened. From these pagan magi, we can take a lesson. Followers of the king take opportunities to proclaim his arrival. They were following a star with the hopes of finding a king. We profess to follow the king of all kings. And we need to be the ones who proclaim that he has come. And we also know that he will come again. And during this Christmas time, during this Advent time, we should be looking for opportunities to tell others about him. Because people know what season it is. Whether they celebrate Christ or not, they know that there are people that do. And those people need to be speaking of Christ during this time and all the time. So they walk into Jerusalem They make this grand entrance. They make this big proclamation. And Scripture says, instead of being received with joy and excitement that the Jewish king has arrived, he has been born, the people were troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search. Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come worship him. Why are the people troubled? Why is Herod troubled? Why is that not what they all desired? They are all in position and they are all in knowledge of that this is supposed to happen. There is one that is supposed to come. They had been looking for him for many, many years. They've heard the stories. They've seen the signs. They've heard the prophets. And now someone is declaring that he is there. And it troubled them. Well, let's take a look at who Herod is. Herod was not the rightful king from the line of David. In fact, he was not even a descendant of Jacob. Remember how I highlighted Jacob on one of those first slides with all the begats, begats, begats? Instead, he is from the line of Esau, not part of the promise. Yet he rules and is on the throne currently in Jerusalem. This fact caused most of the Jews to hate him and never truly to accept him as king, even though he did much for the country. If someone had been rightfully born king then Herod's job was in jeopardy. And this is Herod the Great. And if you do research on Herod the Great, you will understand that one thing he was great at was protecting his territory, was protecting his kingdom, was protecting his throne. In fact, Herod knew no bounds of how 
uh, of the depths that he would go and the lengths that he would uh, accomplish to solidify his own rule in his reign. Killing family members, marrying, I think, nine women to solidify his power around him, and being ruthless in dealing with any opposition that arose to oppose him. This was troubling because Herod was being threatened. The mere presence of one that was born in the line of kings to rule over uh, uh, the Jews was in direct opposition of Herod. And Herod never went down without a fight. So this announcement didn't cause celebration. It brought fear. It brought anxiety. And it raised the temperature in Jerusalem to be on guard and on lookout. Herod himself uh, took immediate action. He called the chief priests and the scribes of the law. And he's like, hey, we need to get to the bottom of this. And he says, tell me where the Messiah was to be born. And I don't want to miss this. Because this is one of the things I caught in um, uh, doing observations this Uh, in preparation. Remember, he was born king of the Jews, and Herod's question is, where is the Messiah to be born? Herod hears the announcement and says, oh no, this may be the Messiah. Let that sink in. It isn't just a king. It isn't just a normal earthly king that might oppose him. He's understanding this may be the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that is to be king of the Jews. And that is who's threatening him. So he calls in the chief priests and the scribes because they would know. He says, hey, where's this? What are the GPS coordinates for where this is supposed to happen? And they plug it into their GPS. And what spits out is Micah 5.2. And it says, in Bethlehem, in Judea. Which, if you remember the start of Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came. So these, these leaders, these scholars, pinpoint where this was supposed to happen. And it's the same location that Jesus has been born. So now Herod knows where. So he starts devising the how. How am I going to deal with this threat? How am I going to eliminate this opposition? So he brings back the Magi. And he says, hey, I got an idea. Let me tell you where you need to be looking. And he gives them the coordinates. And he wishes them well. Hey, and when you find this child... Let me know, because I, like you, want to come worship him. And he sends them on their way. Well, at the end of uh, the section, we, or at the end of this passage we're looking at today, we see that God intervenes and tells the Magi not to go back to Herod, and so they leave another way, leaving Herod's plan in deficit. But he makes up for it in this way. Matthew 2, starting in verse 16. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity uh, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod ruthlessly protected his throne. He was not going to spare anyone's life. Nothing was sacred. Nothing was protected. All options were on the table. His end goal was to save his power, his kingdom, his position. And he killed children, two and under, as a blanket killing to try to eliminate the threat. And you know what? This is what I take from that. Followers of the flesh look for the opportunities to eliminate threats to their kingdom. Man, when we're following our flesh, we look for opportunities to eliminate the threats to our kingdom. Because, I don't want to admit it, but we set up our own little kingdoms in our lives. Sometimes our entire life is our own kingdom, and we sit on the throne, and we never even interact with God. We just do whatever we want, even if we know what we should be doing. We just decide, no, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do what's best in my own eyes. Does that ring familiar from Judges? And everyone did what was best in their own eyes. We set up kingdoms, and we sit on the throne. And when things try to oppose that kingdom, we respond. Here's some kingdoms I I noted, and then you guys fill in the blank of anything else you have. Man, the kingdoms that oppose God are the kingdoms of self, the kingdom of anger, the kingdom of lust, the kingdom of entitlement, the kingdom of comfort, the kingdom of pride, kingdom of status, kingdom of materialism, the kingdom of fill in the blank. We have these little kingdoms we set up and we respond when they're threatened. When we see it in scripture, sometimes we ignore it. When it We're confronted by other people. Maybe we deny it. When it's exposed, we try to cover it. I mean, the the way we respond, the way we try to keep these kingdoms is we lie, we cheat, we delete, we betray, we throw somebody else under the bus, we deny, we, we just come up with a grand scheme trying to weave a web of lies to protect our position, our pride, our self, our entitlements. This happened yesterday, in fact. We had a a basketball game in the big metropolis of Paragold by Jonesboro. So we loaded up the bus that we call the Armada, and we had a quarter tank of gas for our 13-mile-an-hour vehicle. And as I pulled out of the the neighborhood, I did the math. Like, oh, we got this. And I don't know if you've been on Highway 67 lately, around Tuckerman. Um, I don't think these people believe in gas stations. And, and so as the indicator came on and said 27 miles till empty, 
25 miles, 22 miles. And I'm like, oh, I think we got this. There's got to be somewhere. There was nowhere. I'm like, frantically, somebody put in their GPS to find a gas station. It's like, hey, there's one in 13 or 15 miles, I think. I'm like, I, we can't think. We got to know. And, and in the midst of my franticness and anxiety of, oh, my gosh, it is storming. It is pouring rain. There is nobody on this street. There is nothing but flat land and birds. Oddly, do you guys know the trick? Oh, millions of birds everywhere. I'm like, this is, this is not good. And, and I started thinking about my youngest son who's going to miss his game. And, and we were about ready to put the herd on this team. So and we we're all going to get to play. And, and I wanted to see my, my son succeed. I started thinking about myself having to get out and find gas. Like, I don't even know how to find gas with birds. Um, and I started thinking about, well, maybe someone else is coming, but maybe we can get, and I started negotiating all this stuff. And the other six in the car started giving suggestions. All you husbands are laughing, I know. Hey, we should have filled up earlier. Yeah. Hey, haven't we passed some gas stations somewhere along the way? Yeah. You know, I think there was a gas station over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and can I say tiptoe? I may have tiptoed along the line of not responding well. I'm looking at my wife for confirmation because some of you are going to go ask her, hey, is that how it happened? And I, I want to make sure she doesn't call me a liar. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm just getting frustrated. And all I can think of is, none of this matters. I need gas. Like, that's my focus. I want to get to this game. I want to get my, my son on the court. I don't want to walk in the rain. Me, me, me. And at some point, I'm like, there's nothing I can do. And the car would sputter a little bit. I'm like, Lord, I got nothing. I think we're going to be stuck on the side of the road. I sure would like, even though there's no cell service, for you to bring somebody by to take my son to the game and someone else maybe to pick me up and give me some gas. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm just in my own. No one talked to me. Nobody did anything because all I can think of is myself. And then finally, finally, I turned to the Lord. Anyone ever run out of gas before? Thank you for confessing. No, I'm kidding. It's not an easy thing. Like, we put it on the group. Anybody around this area? Because I'm saying anything. I don't want to tell them I'm going to run out of gas if I'm not going to run out of gas. Because, you know, pride. I don't want them to know I'm stupid. It's okay if they think that. I just don't want them to know that. And, and so, finally, it's like, hey, we're like three miles from the gas station. I'm like, oh, Lord, are you going to do this? And then we see the exit. I'm like, we're a mile away. We take the exit. We go down the street. And the glory of the Lord stopped over the Exxon. <laughs> and I can tell you, I think angels were pushing that armada into that place. Some of us ran out to go use the restroom. I took off my shoes because I felt like I was standing on holy ground. <laughs> I was praising the Lord so much the guy was like... Do you have a close call? I'm like, you don't know. And 
I was so thankful to spend $2.99 to put 22.8 gallons in our 21-gallon tank. And that's all I had known was the size of the tank. And I just reflected on that as I finished preparing this morning going, there it was. I didn't want to admit I needed help. I didn't want to admit I screwed up. I didn't want to admit I ignored all the indicators that would have told us something. And I wanted to blame other people. I wanted to lash out. And it was all because of me and my focus on myself. I was trying to protect my little kingdom where I'm smart, I make good decisions, and I do math correctly. And I was almost willing to defend it at the expense of the other six in the car. Or maybe tiptoed over it. You can ask Anna. She'll tell you the truth. Followers of the flesh look for opportunities to eliminate threats to their kingdom. What kingdoms do you have set up? What kingdoms are you in charge? And it's all about you. And you find yourself defending at the expense of others to protect yourself or your perceived notion of yourself. My guess is we all have them. After hearing the king, the magi, they went on their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and after they came into the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. As we pick up in this section, I want to point out something, and I'm going to tiptoe again. So the first verse said, After Jesus was born, Herod has everyone two years old and younger put to death because of the timeline the Magi gave them of when the star appeared. And now the star comes to rest over a house where they meet Mary and the child. I just think it's worth noting that when you read it and you observe what the text says, our nativity scenes should have Jesus and Mary and Joseph over here, and about 320 miles away, the Magi. Just fun facts. I don't care if you change your nativity or not. That's up to you. This star, something different. Astrologers from the East have been studying, looking for divine activity to the point where they see this and they take off on this long journey. I wish there was a concrete, this is the truth, as found in the scripture. Uh, But there's a lot of theological study and people that have looked into it. And I picked one to share with you because it's interesting. And God works in such amazing ways 
for continuity to accomplish his purposes as we see in Scripture that I thought was worth noting. Could it be that the star which the Magi saw and which led them to a specific house, it also reappeared, so this star was very different than anything they'd ever seen. It appeared, it disappeared, it reappeared, then it moved, and then it stopped. Could it be that it was the Shekinah glory of God, the same glory that led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years as a pillar of fire and cloud? Perhaps this is what they saw in the east. And for want of a better term, they called it a star. All other efforts to explain the star are inadequate. What if they had been following the Shekinah glory, and the Shekinah glory stopped over the house where Mary and the child were? Pretty cool. Regardless, when they saw the child, they fell down and worshipped, and they offered the best of what they had brought, their gifts. And I think that's such a fitting ending for us today that we see these magi from the east following the king, possibly through the Shekinah glory, rejoicing in his presence. When they see him, their response is worship. We have seen the the contrast of the two kings, the one that is in the line of David and the one that isn't. We've seen the contrast between our lives and what they should be, letting Christ be the king in all, all of our kingdoms. And we're left with the contrast between pagan astrologers and the chief priests and the scribes, the ones that had the knowledge, the ones that taught, the ones that made known that there is one that is to come, And we look forward to that day. I can just imagine them up in front of crowds expounding on all their biblical knowledge of the Torah and the prophets and pointing to one that's going to come. And then when they locate where he's going to be born, five miles away, they don't make the journey. The distance from here to Chick-fil-A and back It's Sunday, you're not going to do that. Five miles. They would not go be in the presence of the Messiah that they were expecting, that they taught about. Non-believers, pagans from the east, read the signs and traveled 400 miles. Knowledge of the king was not enough for them. They wanted to be in his presence. But the chief priests and the scribes settled for knowledge. Do not miss this point, this Advent season. Don't just settle for, yeah, it's Christmas. Jesus came. He saves the world. It's really great. He's going to return. I'm content. Worship him. Seek his presence. Seek his relationship. Go the extra distance to prioritize that time with him, coming before him, confessing where you've set up kingdoms, confessing where you have fallen short through sin, and confessing him as the worthy king 
that was born in that position, that is worthy of that position, that has earned that position through his sacrificial love demonstrated on the cross. Because he is our Savior. He is our King everlasting. And as followers of him, we rejoice in his presence. This Advent season, we would do ourselves a favor to seek the King and worship him. Even in the midst of all the celebrations, anyone Christmas partied out yet? Yeah. I mean, sometimes we're so worn out from celebrating Christmas that we don't celebrate Christ, right? So here's some next steps to help keep us in line. I'll invite one person or family to join us on Christmas Eve. And who have you been walking alongside? Who have you been talking to about Christ? Who in your life needs to hear this good news? Invite them Christmas Eve at 4 or 6 o'clock. You won't be disappointed. And then, as silly as I felt writing this, because I'm like, duh, I will prioritize worshiping King Jesus this week in the midst of Christmas, in the midst of all the hoopla, in the midst of all the parties, in the midst of all the present exchanges and the family getting together. I, individually, will spend time worshiping the one Christmas is about. I will worship the one born King of the Jews. I will worship the Messiah who came. I will worship the one that it is all about. Don't miss what the chief priests and the scribes miss. Don't substitute knowledge for relationship. Don't miss that Christ has come 